You're listening to Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. All right, today we are talking to two black restaurant owners about their experience this past week as uprisings erupted across the country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Up first, James Beard award-winning chef J.J. Johnson, who owns Harlem's Field Trip, a fast casual rice bowl shop. And then after that, Priya Krishna calls up Lewis Hunter, who owns Trio, a plant-based soul food restaurant in Minneapolis. Because we are recording remotely still, uh, audio quality is compromised a bit here and there. Uh, so please just bear with us. All right, here is JJ Johnson. JJ, welcome back to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. How are you today? I'm, I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm all right. A little angry at the world. Yeah. Happy to have a business and... Uh... And been being able to stay open through COVID nineteen. So yeah, the last time you and I saw each other was was March sixth at On Air Fest, a uh, podcast festival in Brooklyn, and a week later, I feel like the entire world had turned upside down. We were hanging out there, and everything seemed like it was, you know, we were talking about vacation and where we'll go, and things getting canceled, and then. Yeah, it became a, a, a real situation for us here in America where uh, people were getting infected at a super high rate, uh, people dying, hospitals getting overwhelmed, and a true uh, shelter in place. Um, I think it was the first time that uh, people that were used to uh, moving freely had to adjust. We've never had to be told to do something of that extreme. It was hard for a lot of people. Yeah, and let, let's talk about you guys as a restaurant providing food for your community up in Harlem. Um, I mean, I mean, two things I want to talk about today is, is the, the last 10 weeks that you've weathered as a restaurant owner. Uh, and then in the past week with the uprisings around the country in the wake of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery, um, you know, as a black restaurant owner and a black man, like what this past week has been like for you. But I guess let's just start off with COVID-19. And, you know, did you guys stay open the entire time? Did you close for a bit? How did you manage those waters? I'm not a person that suffers from anxiety. I've been taught that there's going to be hard times in life and you will figure it out. In the storage room where I'm sitting with you during this uh, podcast, I came in here, I locked myself in this room and I started to think like, oh my God, this business this concept, this vision that we have been developing for years might come to a halt because I only have this much cash in the bank to survive. If I close my doors, I will not be able to open. Two reasons is the money will run out. Most people thought you close your doors, you don't need to pay for sales tax, rent, all these things, nothing stops. Uh, and two, the Filtra brand was a new brand in a community that people were just starting to get to know. Uh, so I decided not to close. And I, I would say the, the, the one of the major factors was our, our supervisor, Kira, said to me, you know, I rent a room. I don't have a large refrigerator. I can't hoard groceries. I need to be able to eat somewhere. And there's a lot of people in this community that can't go to a grocery store and just stock up. We need to figure out how to stay open. And what we were able to accomplish in the last 10 weeks during COVID or 11 weeks during COVID, and, and COVID's not over, but like the heart of COVID, we touched the community very differently than it would have taken me five years, two years to do. People that eat in this restaurant now and Field Trip are not the same people that were eating in this restaurant pre-COVID. 
that that customer left that customer's at was home and i used to make these these funny jokes and say you know popeyes closes that's our you know we're gonna be good because people are gonna be looking for food popeyes started closing at four o'clock people were coming into the restaurant saying hey man i passed by this place i have 15 my last 15 dollars. i was gonna go to popeyes what can i get here do you have crispy chicken and we were converting people one by one but then also people started to see what we were doing we started to feed first responders right from i mean frontline workers right from the jump due to the fact that my wife telling me nurses and doctors weren't thinking about food and they were hungry through the day so we adopted all the hospitals in upper manhattan in the bronx uh, to date, we've done 50,000 meals out of field trip. And that started making people realize that they could trust us, that they knew who we were, what we stood for, what we could become, and that this small restaurant that was new, well, uh, right now we're about 10, 11 months old, that was new, would be here with us through the darkest times to make sure that we had some food, or what I call it was this Obama hope in the community that there's people that were actually going to work and people that were unemployed can say one day I'll be back at work. One day I'll be getting back up to receive a paycheck or I'm going to spend my money because I know these people working here and they live around me and they're my peers. So I'm going to make sure that they have a paycheck so that they can support themselves and their families. Speaking of work, and you mentioned that you're not one who really suffers anxiety. What about your employees? Were they eager to keep working? Were some of them scared? Like as a manager and a boss, how did you sort of coach them through that process about how you guys were going to do what you did? I'm a big uh, advocate of hiring from your community, uh, regardless where, where you're located, what community you're in. And this time truly hiring from the community was a plus, right? People that live five, 10 blocks upstairs around the corner, felt safe walking to work. They weren't taking public transportation. Maybe two staff members were taking public transportation. And we put systems in place, you know? I, I, put, I put systems in place for what people should do when they get home. My wife, my wife Mia, has put systems in place and because she's a nurse. What do you do when you walk in the house? I said, this is what we do in my house. This is what I want you to do in your house. So people were following that. So everybody knew you were safe going home if you were doing these things and then you were safe coming into the restaurant. We put practices in the restaurant. It's hard to explain. Like it was an honor to see my staff believe in me or coach them through potentially uh, the hardest moment of the of our lives. That's when I realized that field trip was bigger than me. Field trip uh, really uh, is an is a brand that people, when your employees believe in it, means that your 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 consumers, your guests believe in it just as much and people were coming in to check on on our employees making sure that they were okay they might not have been coming in to buy food but they were just stopping in to bring flowers or to say hey i made these cookies at home i want to give you some even before covid you were really making a point for your staffers to reach out to the community to greet them a certain way when someone comes in the restaurant that they're not just sitting there at the register taking her order. Yeah. I mean, when you walk in a field trip, we say, welcome to field trip. Everybody says it. Um, when you leave the restaurant, we say, see you next trip. If somebody does say it, somebody will email us and say, Hey, this person this day did not say, see you <laughs> next trip or welcome to field trip, which is really a great thing, which, which means that you know what to expect as a culture when you come here. Uh, but we touch the community uh, so much. I mean, 
we went back, I went back to like old school hospitality traditions with menus on the window, taking takeout and delivery over the phone. First delivery, contactless, I did. My staff made a joke, it was an older woman on the phone and said, she'll probably be happy to see you. I walked to her apartment, I put the, the bag on the door, I knocked, I said, field trip. I walked away to go back to the elevator, she was screaming my name, I need help, <laughs> I need help. Yeah, it's a crazy story. I go back, I say, what's up? She said, can you come in my apartment? And I made a joke, like I'm thinking of like SVU mm-hmm. running through my mind. I said, are you gonna kidnap me? She's like, no, I need you to move my oxygen tank. Wow. And I go into her apartment, I move her oxygen tank, I then feed her cat, we then talk, I then pour her some ginger ale. And I said, well, where's your nurse's aide? And she said, well, well nurse's aides aren't allowed to come to our apartments. We are, we are the higher risk. We have no help right now. So when, I walk, when she walked by field trip, she said that she would see people going in and coming out and being super happy. And when the, when the news was telling people to order from your local restaurant, she decided to order from field trip because she knew whoever brought her order would help her, right? Um, and she still orders from here daily. We have to tell her before that we can't come into her apartment anymore uh, because that's just not safe for our employees, but we're, we're willing to help her out in any way we can. But yeah, you know, it showed that restaurants are true community builders, that they are a necessity um, and they do help communities with not just providing food. And they're also businesses. And, and can you just speak about like what business was like pre-COVID-19 in terms of profit margins and, and how you've been able to sustain or try to keep your head above water for the past 10 weeks in terms of as a business owner? So pre-COVID, I would say we started to find our stride, stride um, January, February. We were about to launch this corporate uh, dining business this the light in the tunnel got really big, like, oh wow, we're gonna have this corporate dining, we're gonna be in Goldman Sachs's and Morgan Stanley's. And then uh, COVID occurred and it was like our sales just plummeted uh, by 60% because we lost all of our in, in-house dining. And that's when I did the first responders, feeding first, first responders and uh, nurses and doctors that's what really helped bring people back to work. That's what really energized the business. And we did that at an $8 bowl, um, kind of it was at cost, field trip in- inherits the, um, or pays for the sales tax and the delivery. And that was bringing a cash flow back to the business. Um, and individual people were supporting it, uh, corporations were supporting it. You know, we were down and we, we had to figure out how to pick it up. And I think our community outreach allowed people to come back in. So we were down 60%. I think every week we started to see an uptick by 5%. We had our PPP money. So we were trying to figure out how to spend the money, but not very wastefully, which a lot of people are doing. They're just spending the money because they have it versus using it in a way to make the business successful. So I would say we're close. We're getting close to break even. Mm-hmm. But my goal is if I can, ha- if I have the customer base right now that I have and when the economy opens back up and we have our old customer and we have both of them, then the field trip will be, and Harlem will be very successful. Uh, we'll probably start you, dropping a lot of money to the bottom. You had mentioned supporting your restaurants. Uh, um, in the past week, in response to the uprisings across the country, a lot of people and, and brands like Bon Appetit have been going on social media and saying, you know, support black owned restaurants and, and giving lists around the country. And, and 
what do you think of when you see that? I think it's very important that, that people are saying to support black-owned businesses. It's very, very taken for granted when a black owner opens up something, how long will it last? And they, we have the responsibility that we, we need to open it in our community because we need to make sure we still own in our community before we go into any other community. But most white people are scared to come into a black community unless Bon Appetit will write about it or the New York Times will write about it. Right now there's lists circulating around the country uh, and you hear that Harlem is getting gentrified every day. But if you look at that list, Harlem has the most black owned business, black owned restaurants in the country. And then if you look at that list and see who's written about it, most people don't even ever heard of these places, right? I mean, uh, Melba's has been in the community for over 20 years. Sylvia's we all know, but it's been here for 50 years in the community. If you're saying support black owned business right now, are you gonna support black owned business tomorrow, three months, six months from now? And I'll be very honest, just alone with field trip, I saw a 20% increase in sales in the last two days just by saying support black owned business. We're, I'm happy to see it, black owned businesses are happy to see it, but now this is our momentum to build and grow on it to say we are all equal. We should not have to say support black business. We should be saying support businesses as a whole because we're all Americans. And, and food media has just dropped the ball on that. Uh, food media and, and, and food PR have just dropped the ball on people, you know, going out to eat at restaurants in communities that are, that, that are black, uh, going to black restaurants. I mean, I could, I, I've always questioned, you know, why wasn't Cecil reviewed uh, by Pete Wells. I mean, it was the best new restaurant uh, in America by Esquire and, and, and no other restaurant in Harlem that was black has ever been written on a, a list like Esquire or, or ever has been on your Bon Appetit 50 list, right? And I'm very keen of who's in food media so I know who comes in and out of my restaurants and who's been here. But just think about the young black guy that got a small business loan or begged his mama to be a co-signer uh, on a loan or just said, screw it, I'm gonna just nickel and dime this while I have my catering company on the side. And then when you come to the restaurant, you're like, ooh, the customer service is bad or why is my food taking so long? Because the business doesn't have enough people, enough support to fund the proper ways of hospitality to make it successful. Why do you feel that it took so long to put out something of black businesses or, you know, like I think about your BJ Dennis article, which was like amazing and Bon Appetit, 12 pages. We don't really see that from you guys that much. Is that a, is that a lack of people don't want to write about it? Is it your consumer base? Like I think we as black uh, restaurants want to understand that so that we know how to not market our restaurants to you, but know how to reach out to you in a better way so you can see what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And you and I touched on this yesterday when we were quickly talking. You know, it's like, I wonder, were mainstream food brands over the years not covering up and coming young black chefs because there weren't any? Or are there now young up and coming Robinson chefs like you and Eduardo Jordan and Marshall Bailey and Kwame and Nina Compton? Like, 
were they always there, but now mainstream food brands are finally covering them? Were brands like BHS not not looking? I mean, I, I'll use Preston Clark as an example. I mean, Preston was cooking at Cannibal. Um, he was with John George running his kitchen. There's always been, I think there's always been uh, black chefs in America cooking great food, deliciousness. Maybe they haven't been the owners, but they've been underneath some of the greatest uh, restaurants that we know and they've been running their kitchens and have gotten no credit. I mean, look at look at Jean George. I mean, I look at Jean George, look at Eric Repair. Eric Repair has one of the most talented black chefs in the country. And now he comes out and he wants to say he has a black chef because society has pushed him to say it. Why hasn't he talked about him in the past? Why hasn't he given him the green light in the past? And I think that's what gets me upset. I've been in these kitchens or I refuse to work in these kitchens. Why I tip my hat to people like Drew Nipriant, um, Corner Table Restaurant Group, the, you know, the Smith, uh, you know, Leah Cohen at when she was at Central Vino Teca. I mean, these were the restaurants that gave me success and their kitchens were diverse. But media has never show, showed that in, in any lists. I mean, if, if we really think about it, me and El Guardo Jordan have been the only ones on best new restaurant list uh, to win the, at the top. We, we were there because Cecil was there because we had one of the most powerful black men that funded that business. Everybody doesn't have that luxury. El Guardo had that because he had his family funds and he worked in the lineage. So the lineage was supporting him. But there's been black chefs cooking uh, for a really long time. Yeah. Well, well, Preston's father, Patrick Clark, who's kind of right. the original, he used to be the chef at Tavern on the Green and very celebrated back in the 90s and James Beard days. But yeah, no, I, I think food brands like ours just, just need to do a better job and, and open your eyes and often it's right there in front of you. Um, and you get a little too siloed into just a certain type of restaurant or certain type of chef that you cover. And as an editor, I realize like it, it gets repetitive and homogenous and that's the last thing you want or your reader wants. And you gotta have to shake yourself out of it. And like, you know what, this is actually, we're not doing a service to the reader and we're not giving a sort of true representation of, you know, the fabric of American cooking, which I, I always say it really is the most diverse in the world in terms of Correct. what's out there, like by far. Correct. By um, far is the most diverse cooking in the world because of the people that are in the country and where the people have come from and what they've been through and cooking techniques. I mean, look at Sean Brock, right? Sean Brock says, I'm going to cook this hillbilly cuisine from West Virginia that people don't know about which is really the food of the Native Americans that he's now celebrating because that's who he grew up around. For me, it's always about you know, di diverse, diverse staff and then that, that staff constantly educating us as leaders to then write about really good things. And I think that's why we were very successful during COVID because the group, the, the collective group at the top were black women, white, white men, black, uh, homosexual, you know, like these were the collective people and the voices coming to me when we were talking about what should we do? Everybody was like, well, hold on, let's think about this, but what about this and how about this? It really was able to shape who we were as field trip and not just be the, the one black man voice. It was, you know, my partner, Will Sears, who is a true New Yorker, you know, Valerie, who does communications for us, Lisa Cash on operations, and I pulled my sister in from a nonprofit aspect. And we were able to collectively express ourselves 
on the on what to do during a COVID time. And I think that that needs to happen in the food world, especially a, a black food. You know, black chefs were cooking in hotels and cooking food before food meat before there was food media. You know, white yeah. white men did not want to cook cook food. We're going through something similar or realizing at work, like if you have a homogenous pool of editors as talented as they may be, you know, when you do get together to meet, you get a, a repetition of the same type of ideas. When you have a more diverse mix of editors, you get a more diverse mix of ideas that are more stimulating. And it's not just the same thing over and over. And yeah, just, I know we, we just need to do a better job and work into sort of, in sort of enlarge that pool and, and mix it up. Um, Cause I think ultimately everyone benefits when you're able to, what, um, what do you see the weeks ahead? Like JJ and you know, it's right now it's beginning of June. Is it keep doing what you're doing for the next few months and hopefully things get better in the fall? You know, it's, it's been interesting. Cause it was like, um, was we, we were just fighting COVID-19 uh, and figuring out how to adjust to COVID. Um, and I call COVID the true reset of society or supposed to be the true reset of society. You know, the grass is greener, the air is cleaner, and we shouldn't come back as the same society that we were before, right? Electric cars should be on the road. Companies should be diverse when we're rehiring. But yeah, I, you know, here at Field Trip, we won't stop feeding people. That will become our mission. Uh, we will be always feeding. Uh, we will be feeding in brown and black communities. Uh, food insecurity is a really big thing for me. And I think about it, a field trip, if I had 200 Chipotles, I'd be feeding people one burrito at a time <laughs> during these times. So when field trip is 200 units now, because I truly believe we could be 200 units whenever that occurs, uh, we'll be feeding one rice bowl at a time to people in need. And field trip will be looked at as a true necessity in communities across the, across the country uh, or the globe and not just looked at as luxury. And the restaurant industry has been truly looked at as a luxury why we have gotten no help or support during this time. I'm not sure in the next six months or a year, people are going to sit next to each other and listen to somebody uh, slurp noodles and <laughs> cough on each other. Here at Field Trip, we won't have our dining room back open until September 1st, and we'll gradually uh, open it up for our 20 seats as we see fit to our customer and the, and the need of, of, the, of the immediate customer. Uh, but the, the restaurant industry is, you're not reopening, it's a grand opening. And what does that look like for you? And I think especially for New York City, where, we're, where all of our restaurants are on top of each other, uh, what does your dining room look like? And I think that's what most people should have been doing with their PPP money was not bringing back their staff to cook delivery. Maybe some people were doing delivery, but maybe putting the construction workers on payroll to help them reconfigure reconfigure your dining room or build plexiglasses or add in a takeout window if you were if you were away and you come back as a, as, a, as a new place uh, for us we're adding on our this week coming I'm adding on my own delivery team uh, and the delivery team uh, will be doing deliveries on seamless and right through our website because I want to be able to control delivery and looking at these fees are, are, are just insane we make no money and I want people to get their food quicker. I want them to trust us more. Uh, restaurants are all about trust, but you can't be the expensive restaurant putting caviar in a container and saying, well, you're gonna, I'm gonna charge you $150. I bought food last night uh, from a restaurant, local restaurant. It was delicious, uh, but it uh, was $80 and it was just for me and my kids. 
my wife was at work and it was like, I'm spending 80 bucks for me and my kids for some bucatini pasta with short ribs and a sirloin with two pieces of broccolini and potatoes. Like you're getting more food from me at field trip for $11. And that's been the constant conversation. I have local fluke on my menu right now from Montauk. And somebody came in and was like, yeah, fluke for $11.99. I just got fluke with succotash for $42. Restaurants can't do that. It's, it, 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 if you do that, then you're the same restaurant before that was just offering takeout as a luxury and not being a necessity. And I think the mindsets of us have to change. And I mean, everything across the board from the tip pools to 80-20 rules to everything. This is a true reset for us to fight for everything we've always been fighting for. Just all about what you do and how you do it and what you guys kind of write about. All right. You can check out JJ's first unit of field trip at 109 Malcolm X Boulevard. Um, JJ, hopefully we will see more of them uh, once we, the industry gets back on its feet. Thank you again for joining us once again and uh, stay safe. Appreciate the conversation. All right. Thanks, JJ. We wanted to basically strike the same sort of tone as the, as told to that we published basically going over kind of a lot of the same points, but we wanted to hear it coming out of your mouth because we felt like you know your voice is so powerful and your words were really powerful we wanted to hear sort of you tell your story in your own words so you know i think maybe if you could start with talking a little bit about the 2016 protest your cousin philando castile and sort of how that led to you opening your rest like sort of how that kind of ended up with you opening trio and then how you sort of started to see those parallels with what happened with George Floyd. 2016 changed my life, like I said. Uh, it was a dramatic change. Uh, I was in, coming back from Vegas, when I got a call from my cousin, uh, Darlene, and expanding that uh, our cousin was murdered by the police in Roseville and it just you know the person on the side of me immediately went to uh Facebook to see what happened seemed to go immediately into tears and I like this don't show me but we had a, a long ride so eventually I sent it and uh it broke me down uh, we actually got lost on the freeway yeah. Um, due to this. So then I, um, I get back to uh, Minnesota and uh, they all around the governor's mansion uh, at JJ Hill uh, protesting and everything. And um, yeah, everything was peaceful and everything was cool. And then, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was two days later. No, the next day, there was a candle like for Fernando mm -hmm. uh, where he got murdered at and we all went there we attended all family and friends was out there attending you know. I get a call like we all was getting calls that they had shut down I-94 mm -hmm. and we was like what like you know once again we've seen people get murdered plenty of times but we would have never thought it would have been our own yeah. I just remember getting those calls that they shut down I-94. And that's as a family, we wanted to see what was going on. We went down there. 
went down there just to see, you know, everybody was seeing everybody chanting, you know, and next thing you know, I attended um, to, on the freeway, end up getting hit with a, uh, one of their green, the things that they were shooting. I got hit with one of them. My family exited me off the freeway. I went home, woke up the next day. It was a hot day, about to go out um, and um, go swimming with my kids and a couple of family members. And I get pulled over. A felony stop, maybe 30 officers pulled me out. They didn't, they, they, they roughed me up a little bit. Then they took me down to the police station and they told me they was charging me with Molotov cocktails, throwing Molotov cocktails at the police. Right. And I thought they was lying. I thought it was really a game. So I was like, what, for real, man? Like, yo, man, they must let me out because this is not me. This is not even my character. I was an officer in there that even knew me from the streets. Yeah. That wasn't my character. So I went to jail. You mentioned that it was sort of with the help of the community that you were able to to beat the charges. So yeah, I fought those charges for two years, two and almost half years. I fought those charges, and with the help of the community and like people like uh, Nico, Unicorn Riot, he recorded. Uh, people like Chantel Allen, Akima Armstrong, all those people in the community, Sarah Woodcock, all these people in the community came together, got other people in the community and fought those charges. Within one month, I got these people on my side and the charges were dropped. And you were able to open your restaurant trio right yep. after that. Yep. Uh, I say eight months later, me and Sarah and Dan became friends and we was talking about, we, we was rebuilding my life and just talking about what should we do, and then it came up, let's open up a vegan restaurant. Uh, well, it was really, really, it started out as a vegan food truck. Eventually, community didn't see it that way. They wanted to see us do better than that and wanted us to open up a brick and mortar. And we started out with a Kickstarter, which we try to raise $50,000 now. You got one month to raise that. And if you don't, um, if you got 49,000, all the money go back to the donors. But and that one month we raised $65,000 and we was able to open Trio Plant Bakes, which I'm in right now. So can you talk to me a little bit about sort of what it was like when you heard the news about George Floyd and sort of the parallels to your experience with Philando? My anxiety immediately kicked in, immediately. Um, I thought about his family and how our family was, you know, like lost, um, like, Unbelievable, you can't believe this, like, you know, um, hurt, pain. Um, I felt at that moment, I just felt like that was my brother because that's my brother, you know what I mean? Regardless if me and him don't have the same mother or not. And it just hurts to see that black men get killed on a daily. And um, I, we all said it about Philando. It, 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 we hated it had to be Philando, but Recording is the best thing. It was lucky somebody was there to record Floyd. Otherwise, he'd have been just another black person. So I was devastated. And you closed your restaurant in Solidarity. Can you talk to me about that decision? Yes, I decided to uh, close my restaurant in Solidarity to my community, to my brother, brothers and my family and everyone. Just, and there was a lot going on. I didn't want to um, 
jeopardize none of my employees getting hurt or anything as well. So I just seen fit that, um, yes, give back to the community and let them know I'm standing here with them. I'm, I'm, I'm 10 toes down. Like if I was with, when I was with in Philando's, you know what I mean? So. Yeah. I thought it was really powerful that you have a photo of you and Philando in the window. And now you also have George Floyd's name written there as well. Yes. And it goes back to say, you know, with our family that, you know, people was supporting and bringing food to give back to our family, the community and everything. And it's like, now I was on the other end, which God is amazing for me to be able to give out those 300 meals, like was done for us when it happened to us, which is still happening to us. But I'm talking about us as a family and that was just amazing to be able to do that, you know. And how are you all able to kind of mobilize and give out meals to, to protesters and to the community? Well, you know, we are on Lake Street where all this happened at. So, you know, everybody's still walking up. This is like a monument right now. So we was, people just walked past. There was people cleaning up. That was out there cleaning up. Uh, anybody who was driving by, we gave food out to. So it was just right here at our door, in our window. You know, one thing that we talked about was sort of, the sort of trauma that you feel seeing these protests happening again, having sort of your life being, having changed forever from attending a protest in 2016. What have the, what are, what are the protests been like in Minneapolis and, and how do you feel sort of when you're driving by or, or, or even part of them? Everything I see is pain and hurt. This is a, a result of I'm tired, you know, um, it goes back to, tell me I can't, I can't eat. I can't, I, I, you got, you the store and I don't have no money, but I can't get no food. And I ask you every day kindly, can I just get one piece of whatever it is just to eat? And I just continue to ask you this over week and week. At the end of that month, I'm coming in there and I'm still something to, to let you know, I, I just, I've been asking all this time. I've been asking, I've been pleading all this time. Would you just please help me? Just please, we, that's all we want is a conviction. Man, and that's just the bare minimum. Because guess what? We got Philando. We got all these other people that didn't even get convictions. And these men are walking around free right now while we're suffering. We're suffering to this moment. America is suffering. It's not just blacks. We white people are seeing and tired of seeing black men get killed. And when I seen that, man, that was a blessing to see. You know, every white person ain't gonna be that way, but a lot of white people are tired too. Black men get killed all the time. So I'm I'm still devastated. This is still like a nightmare. Um, walking down my street is like a nightmare. It's like, is this true? Is I'm going to wake up and then this goes back to normal? No, this is real. And I know it's real. It's just, I didn't know when it was going to come because so many people got killed. It just hurts in your soul, in your bone. It hurts so bad as a black man that I can't even walk outside and I know I'm safe because I know I'm not. I know I'm not. And you were sort of, it sounds like you were victimized by police at that protest just this weekend. Can you just briefly touch on, touch on that? Protecting the community. 
my landlord would, would love to speak. He tells you that the neighbor upstairs, I protected this building that I'm in. My windows, none of my windows broke. None of, none of my landlord windows got broke. And I can't say that it was me. It was God. I was just here doing God's work. He protected the building. So everybody who tried to bust his window, all I told him, like, come on, man, you can't do this. If you bust his window, it leads to mine. Please don't do that. Somebody tried to burn the back stairs down. No, please don't do that. So I was just talking to Unicorn Riot and, you know, doing what me and you're doing about yeah. going on. And he was a reporter that they just, they wasn't going to shove him in, to my opinion. They wasn't going to shove him in until they seen me. And when they see me, I'm right, I was in my door. He got shoved in my door. So when he got shoved in, that's why that police came and did that because I was behind him and I was in my door. So who got pushed down? Me. No, nobody could see that behind the camera because Unicorn pointed at the police. So that what made me so upset. And it's like, I'm really just trying to protect. I'm a black owner. I'm a black owner. Why am I getting, and then my kids is right here. Yeah. Like, it was just sad, man, and it hurts, and it hurts, and it hurts, and it hurts that we in danger as black men. I'm, I'm in danger every, as soon as I walk out the door, I know I'm in danger. And it's sad, it's just so sad. I was at the peak of my door and I was in danger. Sad. You had mentioned that you were meeting with other black restaurateurs in the community to kind of talk about how you guys can unite in some way. Has there been any um, anything to come out of that yet? Any any idea? Right, right now, no, right now we really haven't because everybody's still protected. You know, everybody's still in disbelief. Like this hurts. Like in the, in the hurting stage, I don't even think not one black restaurant opened back up yet. No blacks have opened up yet due to like, you know, we still at limbo with everything and what's going on, you know? So it's, it's kind of hard to connect everything that's going on. People, I think most people like I am, is taking the time and really loving on your family right now. You know? Loving on the people who love you man, because you never know. It can be Lewis or next, whoever next, you know, and it's just morning time. I guess if you were able to speak directly to the listeners of this podcast, what you want them to hear, what you want them to do, what actions you want them to take. For one, let's not make this no race war. Um, um, please, let's stick together, y'all. Let's love, let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. And I say it many times in everything I do, let's pray. Because we had a time that we need prayer. Let's bring love back. Man, there was a love at one point in time. Let's, let's, I, it, it gotta be, it gotta be somewhere. Let's build it, come back with it, love it. I just wanna, I want the love to be, the world to be in love and, and, and peace. And I know, we won't get that if we don't get no justice. I know we won't get that. So I'm just praying for justice and let's all, let's pray for justice for this one, man. He deserves it, the world deserves it. Thank you so much. Yes. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? 
I just want to thank all the community. I want to thank you guys for even um, taking the time out to even interviewing me. I want to thank the community for sticking in there with Trio at a time like this, because we have not been hoping and they've been blessing us. Um, they showed us more love, love than the government have during COVID-19. So with that being said, I just want to thank the community and uh, sending all my love and my heart out to them right now. Just thanking them. This is, this is what we call the love, you know what I mean? So I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys. Thank you. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wartsman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.